Welcome to The Edge of Leadership with Michael Molinaro and Greg Thompson, a podcast series featuring conversations with fanatical outliers, unapologetic contrarians, and passionate zealots that will challenge you to rethink your most closely held beliefs about leadership and its role in today's complex organizations. And now, Michael and Greg. Hello, this is Greg Thompson, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of The Edge of Leadership. My podcast partner, the ever-brilliant Michael Molinaro, and I are thrilled to be joined today by Josh Ehrlich. Michael and I have been anxious to have Josh join us on this podcast for some time. He is not only a world-class executive coach, but he is also a pioneer in, in the emerging field of mindful leadership. Michael and I, in our work every day, see many leaders confronted by information overload, shifting priorities, and complex environmental changes. Interesting, Josh has really taken this psychological concept of mindfulness and he's turned it into practical leadership actions, unlike any other coaches that we have known. He has really created a coaching practice in which he helps leaders make significant shifts in their ability to thrive in today's demanding environments. He's the author of the wonderful, inspiring book, Mind Shifting, Focus on Performance, and many insightful articles. On that note, over to you, Michael. Thanks, Greg. Good afternoon. And, and Josh Ehrlich, welcome to the Edge of Leadership. You're our inaugural guest. How's that sound? <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, it's great, great to, to talk it. to you again. You and I have had many, I don't know, dozens of conversations over the years about your work and the state of leadership coaching and the state of leadership. So I'm anxious to continue this conversation for the next few minutes. Um, a little bit more about Josh and his background. I've known Josh for probably 13 years, um, but his work uh, precedes me, uh, obviously. Josh is a, is a PhD in psychology from NYU. Uh, I did his undergrad work at Yale. Josh, if I'm right, I think you're, I, I remember this. I'm not looking at my notes, but I remember that your your dissertation was about stress. Is that right? Executives in stress or, or um, how did that go? Correct. It was, it was about what happens when we expect to succeed at a task and we fail which is a situation that happens a lot in life. I was going to say, it must have just come in handy to you all the time. <laughs> what, did you, what did you learn? So we tend to beat ourselves up after failure. No surprise, right? Right. And the people that expect to succeed and have this narrative that um, I'm smart and therefore everything should go well tend to beat themselves up more afterwards. And so that's a real problem in terms of mood and in terms of resilience and coming back from that, taking that knock and being able to appreciate that as a learning opportunity as opposed to, oh my gosh, this is a big, meaningful thing about me. It's not. Right, it's, right, it's something right. about the situation and what I can learn. And so successful leaders are able to reframe quote-unquote failure as a way to get better. Which I, I, I'm going to ask you in a bit. I think that that might be part of a mindfulness practice. So, so just going back to your career for a minute, that was the the intention was to, for you to do clinical work, or or did you think this would lead to an executive coaching career? What was oh, your, what I had no idea at that time? point. No. Yeah, right. So it was clinical work you were going to go do. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, in graduate school, I loved doing clinical work, and yeah. helping people grow has really been the theme. It's not changed the context has changed so what i do now is still helping people understand themselves and think about their potential and what 
they want in life and to align with that. So yes, that is where I see people really unleashing the, the most power from this work. Yeah, I wonder, sometimes people think executive coaching borders on, on counseling or analysis or uh, psychotherapy in some ways. Anyway, I wonder if you, given your background, you have to either dispel people of that or you, you let them believe what they want and you do what's right given your work or do you feel like you're, you're, are you diagnosing? Do you have your DSM in front of you when you're working with coaching clients? <laughs> no, oh, no. Okay. Yeah. We have to be clear. What is therapy and what is coaching? Yeah. Coaching is a professionally focused activity, typically sponsored by organizations. Although sometimes individuals will self pay um, that is about professional development And yet, to your point, Michael, yes, it's a whole person I'm working with. So I'm not carving off their emotional life um, or personal life. I'm including all of it. And because of my training, I can do that and coach the whole person and do it holistically. Whereas some coaches, and when I'm supervising and training coaches, have to be aware of that more clearly, that that guardrail of, hey, I'm not doing therapy. If you bring me something that's in that direction, I'm going to have to refer you out. Right. Yes, I can take that on because of my training, but it also gives me some sense of how to help the understanding bit, but, but yeah. Yeah. I've been intrigued. And, and, and you're joining us from your home in Maine. Uh, You moved out of New York seven or eight years ago, right? I don't remember when, but it felt like that. Yep. Eight winters. Um, We count the winters here. (laughs) Eight winters in Maine. Um, Good move. You happy up there? It's a beautiful thing. And great schools. I'm nurtured all the time by Acadia national park, which is half the Island I live on. And, you know, we'll talk about mindfulness and resilience, but one of the things I preach a lot is just getting yourself outdoors, not yeah. being stuck to your desk and the screens. And this is a place where I can do that pretty easily. And that right. really sustains me um, and is huge for my own sanity, which is really what I'm offering my clients is the ability to get clear and grounded. And if I have that myself, I can offer that. So let's, let's, let's uh, branch over into that. And, um, I think about when, when I think about you and your practice, I think about mindfulness. I know it's much richer than that, but you've certainly um, created a clear distinction for yourself in the field around including mindfulness as a big part of your leadership development practice. Maybe start with the question of what is mindfulness anyway? Mindfulness is present, open, and engaged attention. So I can be present, not in my past memories or future fantasies. I can be open and learning, taking in new information. We often shut down and habituate. And I can be engaged. I can be curious as opposed to passive recipient. And that state of mind has incredible power, Greg mentioned, for learning and for leading. And so we can get into all that. But basically, it's a state of mind. It's not just focused and present, which is Often the the confusion is, oh, mindfulness means focus. Yes, it's also this attitude of openness and acceptance. Yeah, I love the acceptance piece that you often emphasize in our conversations around this. Um, And we can maybe explore a little bit of acceptance of what. But just just for me again, say those three, you you said mindfulness was three things. Say say those again. Present, Present. open, and engaged attention. And yeah, acceptance, I'm glad you picked up on that, Michael, and very perceptive there, because acceptance of what? Well, it's acceptance of reality. <laughs> yeah. What is in front of me, as opposed to my stories about it, 
right? My frames and attributions about it, which typically mess us up. It's not just that we're not just dealing with reality. Often we're dealing with our story about it. And therefore we have a feeling and a reaction to it. We, we create dramas and those really get in the way of our dealing with the most effective thing we can do as a leader in any one moment because we're caught up in our heads and our storylines as opposed to what is really going on. Right. The question I want to ask you is, and I'll say it now, but I don't want to answer it. I want to answer it now is, isn't our stories a big part of our present anyway and carrying, and, and, and so maybe you can address that at some point, but what I want to really would like to go is when you're working with a, 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 a leader uh, in a coaching relationship, do you identify mindfulness as a practice you'll be working on together? Or in other words, do you name it? Or do you simply talking, are you talking about presence and appreciation and, and uh, acceptance, et cetera, and allowing those things to just come together as they were? Or do you put a, do you put a tag on it? Great question. You know, typically I'm not naming it until later. There's a lot of skepticism about mindfulness as a term and a set of research um, and I don't want to run into that. The first thing I want to do is connect with somebody and understand their world. And so for probably 30% of my coaching clients, it never comes up. Right. The better word for this could be not mindfulness because it's not a head thing. It could be heartfulness, but that has baggage. That's too. even worse. Oh, That's worse. Yeah, right. You're telling me, and, oh my God. and you and I used to talk about, you know, is this woo woo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five years ago when I started, Mindfulness was woo-woo. And now investment banks and hedge funds and, you know, high technology firms reach out and ask for this because they want an edge. They want performance. So it's very much not woo-woo because the research has shown that. We yeah. get a performance edge, the focus for performance subtitle in my book, right? So, and athletes too, right? I mean, I mean totally. it's, maybe it started there first. I don't know. I mean, you know more than I do. But, I mean, I guess it started in, in kind of religious practices, I mean, and that's probably not, probably not right. But I know athletes have been trying to get an edge through kind of the kind of mindful behavior you've talked about Correct. as well. Correct. That's right. So, so that's one thing we should talk about is, is, is this religious? No, it is in many spiritual traditions been a practice to teach mindfulness. That doesn't mean we can't offer it to leaders as a practical, secular, research-based practice for your mind. So you can follow these practices as part of a spiritual tradition, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not right. preaching spirituality or religion here. What we're preaching is high performance. And yes, people like athletes have been all about whatever it does to get me perform, I'll do it. And so this has been proven in those settings earlier. They're more open to that because they're, they're really hungry to excel, right? The other people that were very early on adopters were people in dire life situations, stress, and pain. Pain, physical or emotional, in the last couple of years has really driven people to this work that it would not have come before. And so mindfulness can really help us with pain of all sorts, but it's unfortunate it takes that, <laughs> right? But we always need a motivation to come to something new and change behavior. Um, yeah. So now, though, there's lots of popular media attention, lots of research, so it's easier for people to come to this and not. So, so when you're working with a leader and introducing this as a practice that might, you know, you're coaching them on incorporating mindfulness into the way they're working. Just stop me if I'm mischaracterizing what you do, but I'd say that. Um, uh, do you 
you have to instruct them on on how to, or do you? Is it dialogic, or you, in other words, are you bringing it out to conversation, or is it much more? I'm going to give you instead of instructions now on how to be present and appreciative and connected, et cetera. No, it's, it's situational. What is a person dealing with, and what is alive in terms of the problems in their in their work, and then. If mindfulness is a useful tool, we'll bring it up as a learning tool. Hmm. Most people need to be more aware of the impact that they have. Mindfulness is a great way to be aware of that impact by paying attention actively to what are the people's reactions emotionally, physically, non-verbally to you. If you're paying attention, you can pick that up. Yeah. Most of us are most much more focused on what do I want to get done (laughs) versus what's my impact. Right, that but that's important too, right? I mean, these men, these men and women have got paid jobs, and many of the ones you're coaching, they've got to get stuff done. Correct. They are paid to have deliverables. Yeah. This is not a knock on getting stuff done. But I will tell you, you will never get better at getting stuff done unless you look at how you get things done. Yeah. And that's essentially what mindfulness is, is looking at your process. Yeah. And, and do you find that uh, those who – adopt this, become zealots inside their organizations for it? Or is it something where, I don't know how I would feel about talking about, I'm working with Josh Ehrlich, he's an expert and this helping me get better at things. And I'd like you all to participate in this, you know, in something similar beyond me, you know, as if I were leading an organization perhaps. Or do you think that, you know, is there a role for this in organizations beyond the leader? Absolutely. The problem you're pointing to is the problem of zealots and proselytizers and any kind of push like that. There's a backlash and that should be, you know, we don't, we can't just push the um, latest. Oh, I get excited about something works for me. Therefore it should work for you. So a lot of what I'm teaching, I'm teaching mindful coaching and mindful coaching is the opposite of that tell of that advice, that proselytizer mode, which is, Hey, I, I know what works for me. I'm going to tell you to do it the same way. And that's not an effective management approach as opposed to mindful coaching, which is, so how can you get better? I noticed you're late for meetings a lot. You're distracted. Let's talk about your attention. Where does your attention go? Right. How as a team can we support each other in not being frenetic? Because mindfulness is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. If you go alone, you'll struggle. The world is pushing the opposite direction. Our teammates can help us, but we can invite them in as opposed to dictate that they come with us. Yeah. That's, I'm surprised you say it's a team sport. That's something I, I don't think about it that way at all because I mean, I'm naive about a lot of these things. But it seems to me it's a, it's, I, I think about it kind of as an inner game. Yeah. And maybe that's wrong. That's the first step. Okay. We have to notice our own attention, and we can intentionally get a hold of it. Second step is notice that we're part of a social system with a group of people around us. We're getting work done with them, and their attention and their stories and traumas, they affect us hugely. So we need to create psychological safety and mindful teams and then mindful organizations. So that's my guiding point. You You said trauma twice in our conversation. Is trauma a big part of... Um, the life inside organizations that gets under uh, explored? 
Drama, you said. Yes. Oh, no, you said trauma. I thought you said trauma. No, although we could talk about trauma. <laughs> That's probably but, worse. But I, 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 used, I thought I was saying drama. But the, um, yeah, yeah. Well, because whenever you have two people in a room, we have drama. Yeah. You know, we have um, a negotiation. Yeah. Ideally, it should be a professional negotiation. Unfortunately, we personalize a lot and it becomes a drama. Yeah. But yeah, so my, you know, my guiding light is this tripartite, mindful leaders, mindful teams, and mindful organizations. We need all three to create a high-performing organization. It can't just be, again, like, you know, one high-performing team cannot survive in a whole organization that's frenetic and chaotic and, and not aligned. Yeah, yeah. Greg and I wrote recently about um, uh, what we called the purpose-enabled organization. A lot of organizations wanted to try to describe themselves as purpose-driven. And Greg and I realized that. Well, Greg realized it first. I think it dragged me into it. But it was the point that, well, purpose-driven is nice, but there's got to be a lot more, which is about capability. And it's getting me thinking that this kind of my, there's an intention around mindfulness, which has to be matched by a set of skills, right? And that's really, is that fair to say that's what you're coaching on is a set of skills for that? Correct. Yeah. And yet I love what you said about the intention because, yes, that's where I start is what gives you meaning and purpose. And I know you're a, a huge fan of that kind of question because it's yeah. not just about what we get done. It's Is it meaningful? Because yeah. if what we get done is meaningful, then we'll put more discretionary effort behind it. We'll do it well. We'll really put ourselves into it. Yeah. Well, I, you know why I say it? I don't say it because you know, I don't. I, you're right about what I think about it, uh, but I don't say it because I think the right reason to do it is because people will put more discretionary effort. I think that's just as um, labor focused as they. I think it's because it's. It. I think doing things that are meaningful in themselves are by nature more fulfilling to us as people. Right. You know. Um, but you're right. People, have, somebody has to pay the bills. Hey, Greg, do you want to say anything to Josh um, uh, about your coaching practice? And you have a you have a, uh, a a style of coaching which, in many ways, I think is as thoughtful for, for as Josh's, but comes from a maybe a left 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 turn angle than. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael. And Josh, this is fascinating. Uh, just, uh, just, I do have a question uh, for you, uh, Josh, in terms of the connection between coaching and resilience. Uh, the, uh, we, I work a lot, in, and Bluepoint works a lot in the, uh, uh, with physicians and physicians' leaders. And uh, it's not a secret that uh, being stressed, exhausted, facing burnout is a, is a huge problem in the medical community uh, uh, right now. Uh, and, and so... We do a lot of work in training physicians to be coaches and to be more coach-like and do some work, not nearly as much as you in terms of the idea of being present and mindful and engaged and listen deeply to become a better coach. And so uh, it, it, I'm just asking if there's a direct linear connection here. If you become a better coach, if a physician is a better coach, if a leader, a manager is a better coach does it directly impact their resilience? Do they become, if they're a better coach, they listen, they uh, are more present, they are more mindful and doing so become a better coach. So is that a byproduct of, of coach training? Yeah. So if you're mindful, you can be a better coach. Absolutely. And then if you're a mindful coach, you 
can bring your team with you in a way that asks them to step up and allows you to step back. So you're not doing the day-to-day as much. You're going from doer to leader. That's the whole concept of mind shifting. Getting out of that enables you to be more resilient because you're not stuck in the details. And you're absolutely right. I've worked with physician leaders as well. And they've told me they're crispy. They're that stressed and exhausted. And it, some of it, when you know, and you're really good technically and functionally and get promoted into being a physician leader or you know, financial leader, you need to shift where you do and how you see your job. And Michael has described this very well. The whole concept of mind shifting is basically how do I focus to do my job? And physician leaders and all functional leaders need to shift their definition of their job and therefore how they pay attention. Mindful coaching helps you do that, helps you ask that question, and then it helps you coach other people in that invitation for them to step in rather than you to dictate what they should do. Thank you. Uh, very, very, very helpful. Um, further further to Michael's comment about uh, our approaches, our various approaches to coaching and how that might impact um, this idea of mindful leadership. Um the nature of my practice, is, as Michael alluded, is I'm pretty much in your face. I hope I have an, a, a heart for my clients and sensitive <laughs> to them. But most of the wonderful men and women that I work with, um, I see my role is to help them think differently, to look at new pathways. and to uh, They get lied to all the time. We all do. We all get lied to by our staff and organizations and, and the like. And to help them move away from that and to see the truth about uh, what they do, what the impact is, and the pathway that they're on. And that that can be confrontational and often is confrontational, the nature of, of, the, of the coaching. Hopefully it's, it's in their interest. But I, how, do you, how do you help people you know, give their head a shake and really question the path they're on and the information they're receiving and the direction they're going? And at the same time, um, be... I'm not saying you're more Buddha-like, but but almost in some way. The the I'm not a Buddha-like coach. Uh, I know people that are. And is there a way that you can, as a coach, is there a way that you can do both? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not about not telling the truth. And I, I think I'm like you in many ways, Greg, in terms of being a truth teller and a hard-edged in that way. But I don't start there. I find most of my clients, and I'm sure you see this too, we start with building relationship, connecting and supportive relationship where they feel safe. Then we can deal with reality once they feel my support and that I'm aligned with their goals. So the other thing that will help is teaching that person to treat themselves well, because if their self-esteem, their ego is on the line in terms of every perception and approval, how they're seen, that's a problem. So, there's amazing research going on right now about self-compassion. And I will teach that explicitly. I will talk to people about how they treat themselves. And when they can relax in terms of how they treat themselves, they can take in reality better. They can hear the truth from me, even if it's not pleasant, more easily because their ego is not on the line. So Kristen Neff, University of Texas, a lot of research that she spawned and many others around how we treat ourselves is huge in this. Once we treat ourselves with more kindness, then we can deal with reality more easily. As a coach, what changes did you have to make to, so that you can you can excel at this work? It's really interesting, Josh. If, if if you were able to reflect back on the last five or ten minutes of this conversation, and I'm sure Michael would would agree with me, your 
every listener to you in the last five or 10 minutes will be completely engaged in what you had to say, will believe what you had to say, and will be heavily influenced by what you have to say. I was, I was listening to you and I'm an experienced coach and I was thinking, wow, I wish, I wish I had the ability to talk about this concept and this idea in such a personal and engaging way and make it apply to me personally. So, I mean, your journey, I mean, how did you come to the place where not only did you have these thoughts and ideas, but you're able to speak about them in a way that I can hear, others can hear? You're very kind, Greg. I appreciate that. Um, I have spent a lot of time working on myself and trying to um, not be busy all the time. So constructing a life where I can have some groundedness and clarity. So I appreciate your picking that up. If that's present, I'm, I'm thrilled. It is my highest purpose to live in that way. Life and the opportunity to be running and busy and crazy is all around us. And I don't want to jump on that train. So, you know, I spend a lot of time every morning getting into my body and clearing my head and Lots of mindfulness practices and other practices that I love, you know, not just from kind of a pure mindfulness tradition, but yoga, qigong, and there's all sorts of stuff out there. I'm just getting outside. So there's what I call my top five, actually. So I've boiled, I have a little list I call the top 100, which are 100 ways to make mindfulness practical. It's not about meditating. That's something I, I really think we should hit right here. Often there's a misconception that mindfulness means I should meditate. I'm not preaching meditation. Most people won't do it, and you don't need to. It's great. I do it. <laughs> what I'm preaching is how to make it practical. And so I've developed, I'm happy to send anybody who wants um, this top 100 list, ways to make it practical. But because that's a lot, I boil it down to top five. And one of the top fives is get outside, because getting outside resets our attention. and brings us back to our senses. And we're staring at screens, grinding it out all the day, right? back-to-back meetings. Our attention gets habituated and we get very exhausted. When we get outside, we resensitize, we open up our senses, get more awake. That's another way to talk about mindfulness. And we're able to focus better. Josh, those are fascinating points. Just a uh, sub-question. How, how, do you ever talk to your clients or your clients ever talk to you about how this spills over into their personal lives, especially as either partners or as parents? Yeah. Some people say that's the most important thing because that's more important than the work. It's, wow, actually, this will help me with my kids and my wife and right, my husband. So absolutely, that's, I know it's reached people when they start applying it at home. And that will be more sustainable. I've mentioned, you know, it's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. If you bring your family, your core team with you, that really is a whole different game. Thank you, Josh. That was great. Let me turn back to you, Michael, for uh, any wrap-up that we have. Thanks, Greg, so much. Josh, thank you so much for, for your time, the generosity of your time with us uh, uh, this afternoon. And uh, for those of you who want to learn more about Josh's work and uh, mindfulness, and uh, the, the best thing I can do is recommend his book called Mind Shifting. Josh, I think, is celebrating his 10th anniversary this year. Um, uh, it's still in print, and it's a wonderful introduction and more to uh, how to focus your uh, uh, performance. And uh, we'll also make Josh's uh, list of top 100 activities available on the Edge of Leadership uh, webpage, and you can find that link 
Um, so, Josh, thank you again for your time. Greg, very nice to see you. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Edge of Leadership podcast series with Michael Molinaro and Greg Thompson. You can learn more about Michael and Greg at www.theedgeofleadership.com. Again, thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to having you join us for future episodes. 